Welcome to the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, the trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And today will be our fifth episode of the Volrath Feed. Yeah, five. Yeah. Always join, as always joining me today is Justin Pearson, our producer and color man on the feed. Justin, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today. Excellent, excellent. And uh, just to remind everyone again, the kind of the topic or the goal of our show is always just to talk about food service, the diverse world of food service, all things that it encompasses that leads to cooking, food, chefs, kitchens, equipment, just anything at all in the food service industry. It's a big industry and there's a lot to talk about. So we are going to have lots to do. And uh, sometimes it doesn't always have to sound like it's a direct tie. You know, as I always say, we can always tie things back into food service or the restaurant industry somehow. Yep. And um, so there'll be some topics that'll be more direct than others. The second half of our show today, we'll be talking to our guest chef, Mary Castman, who is the executive chef at the Driftless Cafe. We'll be talking to her about her career path and how that's gone and where she's been. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Driftless Cafe is located in Viroqua, Wisconsin, and I've never been there, Rich. Have you? You know, I read that, and I have not. I don't even know where it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't know where it was either, but you know, I was thrilled at the opportunity to learn more about a part of the state that I don't frequent enough. So I think maybe we need to take a little field trip down that direction. Well, for sure. We haven't been to the Driftless Cafe, right? We've got a that should be on our on our things to do. Yeah, I'm making note of that right now, and I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is a perfect example of what's happening all across Wisconsin. You have so many great diners and restaurants and cafes that truly represent the different regions that they're from, providing great locally sourced ingredients and welcoming atmospheres. And they do this all in a way that is still uniquely Wisconsin. Absolutely. And those little towns that have these restaurants where people just have that passion, they go in and they, they run these restaurants and they do some things really unique and they're just, obviously they're, they're happy doing what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not about the, the big city or the, the serving hundreds or the large amounts of people. It's about doing what they really like to do and they can control that environment when it's smaller. It's much easier for them to be really hands-on and local. And uh, that's one of the things I think Mary as well, she does a lot of that farm to table in her yeah. in her restaurant. Yeah, I, I believe that that really is one of the primary components to their secret to success. You know, having all of those fresh ingredients right at your fingertips and, and being able to uh, serve and represent your community in that way really is a huge selling point in, in my humble opinion. Well, you get to know your supplier so much better. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're talking and looking at the farmer eye to eye, you can get a sense of, you know, what they've got and they tell you their story and you maybe take that and you, you probably, at least I think I do when I get something like that, I almost feel more of an obligation to handle it and, and take care of it and cook it better than I would if it was just something I purchased out of a box on a store shelf or something. Yeah, that's very true because it's not like it's just your reputation that's on the line. You're representing each and every one of these farmers and growers and ranchers, you're representing their product as well. And it's your responsibility to do so in the best light possible. I would venture to say that it's a much more personal experience than buying a frozen bag off the back of a semi-trailer. Right, exactly. That that term, it's more personal. You're right. It's, it's, it's much more um, 
just more care to it, you know, right? So farm to table, and, and really when we talk about that, I know you and I talked a little bit about this before, but that, that whole term, right? It's like, hmm. um, you hear it so much now. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know how, when, or why, but it's it's lost a lot of its luster that it once had. Maybe it's through the over-commercialization of the term or the fact that it's been corporatized so much. Or maybe it's just been simply overused by anybody that really doesn't have to adhere to a strict standard. It just sounds really nice to say farm to table, but when it comes down to it, they're just serving stuff that's out of a can or from a factory somewhere, and they're not really considering what it truly means because at the end of the day, it's putting money in their tills. And don't get me wrong, I love the concept behind it, but the phrase really needs to be reserved for the people who truly are farm to table. Well, you you said it, it, it got used too often and it became somewhat, I don't know, um, not impactful anymore, right? Right, right. And it is unfortunate that it's fallen into that that status because it really is a great description of what these restaurants are doing. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to see it come back with some standards that can be adhered to so that it can once again carry the weight that it previously did. It's like artisan. That's another one. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great word, artisan. You know, it just it sounds good rolling off the tongue. But there's been this disassociation with quality because anybody can slap that word on a piece of pretty packaging and stuff it full of garbage and pump it up with a bunch of reviews and sell a million of them not caring whether or not they have any return customers. <laughs> exactly. <Whew. laughs> Getting all fired up, Brisha. <laughs> right. Bring it back down. Oh, uh, exactly. And and my dad, I remember talked a lot about his his pet peeve on words like that was gourmet ah another good say, one. Oh, that's gourmet You'd say what does that mean <laughs> and really what there isn't any legal identity to gourmet it just is a term just like artisan or farm to table or any others that we've talked about yeah or, or organic right well that one should have some meaning to it right but. right but that's one that i still find a bit confusing because i think a lot of people exploit a lot of gray areas with it right craft another one right yeah that's another one used to blanket describe an entire industry that's near and dear to my heart and my liver. <laughs> we'll have to talk to Mary about her take on the farm to table and see how she feels. I, th I, I know she really lives it. She appreciates it. So we'll see what her take is on yeah, it. Yeah. And once again, I just want to reiterate that I fully embrace the concept. I love knowing where my food comes from. I love knowing that I'm helping support local farmers when I go to eat at a particular restaurant. I, I'm curious to know if there's just another term that's buzzing around restaurants that are providing this. So one of the other things we'll look forward to, I, I really want to talk with uh, Mary about is I, I really enjoy when we get chefs on the show talking about the start, how they started. That's to me, that's always an interesting story because I think there's several, you know, kind of routes that we've talked with chefs about and mm -hmm. some of them, you, you grow up in the industry or you're you know, from a little kid, all you've ever done is talk about being a chef. And then I think right. there's a lot of people who, like some of the chefs we've talked to already, will tell you, I, you know, I needed a job one day. I went to a restaurant. They hired me. Yeah. Uh, dishwasher, entry-level position, whatever it was. And then out of need, maybe desperation, <laughs> one night, the chef looks over and he says, hey, I need a hand. Come over here. And they evaluate, you know, has this kid got fast hands or is he a, you know, good thinker? I mean, it, you can kind of gauge them to see if they'll be successful or not. And then... It, either they work or they don't, mm -hmm. um, a lot yeah. of kids. Yeah, and I find it fascinating listening to chefs talk about how they got 
to where they are today. Uh, you, you look at last episode and, and Chef Ashley, and she had an entire career before she realized it was her life's calling to become a chef. And those stories to me, I just find super interesting about coming to that fork in the road and the left turn or the right turn that took you to where you are today. Right. And Mary, she, not to give too much away, but you know, her career path looked very different as she went through school. And it wasn't until at that point that she um, looked at food service and specifically being a chef as something appealing to her. So there's all these different ways that people get into the industry. And then, you know, once you're in the industry, you know, what are your expectations? When, one thing I think that always uh, makes me think about people that say they want to get into being a chef is, what is your idea? What does that mean? Right? So you go to culinary school and you graduate. What do you think is ahead of you? You think you're Gordon Ramsay or the reality is much different. <laughs> right. You know, there's not many Gordon Ramsays in the world or more, uh, these celebrity chefs or the, the, the glamorous positions. You know, there's a lot of a lot of late nights and weekends and holidays and right, right. Uh, that lifestyle is is a very different life. Yeah, and you were always in food. You grew up in the lifestyle, and when you decided to take your skill set outside of Wisconsin, what what was part of your plan to be able to grow and continue to expand as a chef? Well, that's it for me. I as I I grew up in the industry, right? So my parents had a restaurant when I was twelve, and you know, growing up. I knew the hours. I knew the, the work life. I knew what you, what you needed to do to be successful, the nights, the weekends, the holidays, all those times, having off on Mondays and Tuesdays versus the weekends. And at, when I decided to, to look at somewhere else, I actually got into the front of the house because all my experience was back of the house. So I was looking kind of the, I don't know, a change maybe. And I, I looked, I was the front of the house manager. So it was very different, but yet a lot of it's the same. The hours are still the same, mm-hmm. you know, the weekends, the nights, the holidays and all that. So the, the life is the life and it's, it's a good life. If you look at, you know, the things you want out of it, um, the upside fun for a young person, it's a, it's a fun career. There's always a lot to do. You meet a ton of people, uh, easy to move about. You, you can, you know, at moments notice decide you're going to live somewhere else and you can pretty much pick up and go if you are unattached in other ways and there's always going to be a job there Every, everybody's got food service in every town that's true uh, eat well you get a chance to be creative but the downsides again are those lifestyles it's the nights it's the weekends it's the hours it's the family life is the tough part yeah that can be rough if you've got a family so and then uh, as we'll talk some more i think about with mary as well is you know sometimes in this industry for women it can even be you know, a little bit more of a challenge to get into some of these positions. So it'll be interesting to talk to her about that, I think, as well. Yeah, definitely. And to, to me, there's always been this stereotype that food service industry has been heavily male-dominated. And I would love to hear her insight on how things have progressed over the past 10 or 20 years and and hear about uh, her experiences in rising in the ranks and challenges that she's had to face or, or hasn't had to face as she's risen to leadership roles in the kitchen and beyond. Well, I agree. And being the executive chef, right, being at the top of the ladder in the in the kitchen, the one that directs all operations of the kitchen, um, that's traditionally been a very dominated male role. So when you find someone like Mary here who's who's done that, I, I'm sure she'll have a perspective on it that 
you know, we'll, we'll appreciate hearing because I, I do think it's, you're right, a very male-dominated uh, industry, has been. Uh, see it changing now, but that's a good thing. But um, it'll be interesting to hear her perspective on that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, swinging back around on locally sourced ingredients, Rich, what are some things that you absolutely look for and have to have when when you're cooking? You know, in a perfect world, we'd be able to go right around the corner and get any particular ingredient that we, we need for any particular recipe. But what's something, as a Wisconsinite, that you have to get from Wisconsin? Well, obviously, I think the, the big thing is produce. When you have a chance, right, to get something that has recently been in the garden or on the vine or however you look at it and use it when it's ripe versus what we know happens where they pick it, process, put it on a truck, mm-hmm. ship it for how many days, yeah. put it in the store. It, it, it just doesn't have the flavor. It no, doesn't no. have that. It's just not as fresh, right? As, as right. my dad, I'll, the words ringing in my ear is fresh is best. <laughs> yeah. Fresh is best. So produce, number one, absolutely without doubt. And then again, the other side of it is any of those farmers that you can meet and look them in the eye, no matter if it's uh, produce or if it's meats or eggs or whatever it is, you just get a sense of how you think they run their business. Yeah. And you get a sense that you feel, you feel better about that product. You feel better about what it's, how it's been raised and handled and um, ultimately how it's going to be good for you. Yeah. And one thing that comes to mind is this resurgence in popularity of farmer's markets where a lot more people are having access to these fresh ingredients and, and being able to experience that, that moment where they can look a farmer in the eye and, and talk with them and laugh and shake their hands and, and get a feel and really establish an emotional connection with where their food is coming from. You know, Justin, I just had this thought. Yeah, what's that? And going back to what we were talking about earlier, have farmers market, has that term lost a little bit of it, what it, <laughs> yeah. what it used to be? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. I, I think <laughs> I think a lot of them are operating outside of the the scope of that term. You know, it, it does seem like a lot of them have turned into more little tiny carnivals where exactly. you've got booths selling everything from knickknacks and crafts to swords and <laughs> whatever. You know, I've seen some pretty crazy stuff at some farmer's markets. But regardless, I still think they're a lot of fun and you can get a lot of great food there. Right, right. It's flea market now turning into, right? So here <laughs> yeah. we go. Another one of those uh, terms we like. And we the term conjures up like this emotion inside of you, right? Farmer's mm-hmm. market, farm to table, artisan, craft. And, and then... As you look at it and start looking at all the places it's used, you kind of feel like, huh, I guess it yeah. just doesn't have that that emotion anymore for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In yeah, some also, cases. Some cases, yeah, it, may, we're going to find out. Maybe we know. just need to task ourselves with rebranding some of these terms, you know, and, and breathing new life into them. And, and... <laughs> I, I, you're right. We might have to give that a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I think it's time that we should welcome our guest to the show, Chef Mary Castman. Again, who is the executive chef at the Driftless Cafe. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Our pleasure. Thank you for, for taking the time with us. Absolutely. And like we like to do with our chef uh, guests is we like to find out, you know, what was it that got you into the industry? Where did your 
motivation? When was the, the moment you thought, this is where I want to go in my life and, and make this my career? Where, where did that happen? Or how did you get to that point? It's kind of funny because I was in school uh, getting my four-year degree in English literature at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And while I was in school, I was working as a basically accountant for the university club there and uh, just doing a lot of the management stuff for the front of the house. So I sort of got bitten by the bug because I was looking at what the back of the house was doing and I was really interested. And so every day I kind of tried to sneak my way in there a little bit, like come in early, learn some knife skills, stuff like that, um, and cooking a lot at home. And I graduated and decided about a year later that I wanted to go to culinary school because um, I was still <laughs> working in that university club and wanted to make it into something uh, more substantial. So That, that is so, a career shift. That yeah. is a shift in Absolutely. career direction. <laughs> what, what, what was your career perspectives with an English, English lit degree? You know, I was probably going to go end up going to graduate school and end up teaching in some capacity. It was probably, you know, I had thought about becoming a high school English teacher or even a professor just because most of my family, you know, took that academic route. So that was sort of what was going to be the natural progression. But then obviously it did not end up happening. So <laughs> so, so you said you were working in, in the front of the house more or less. And yes. then you always kind of looked in the back and saw that and... And what was the moment or how did that happen? How did the, I know you said you, you would learn knife skills and maybe you, did you ask questions or how did it come that you actually jumped to the back of the house? I think it was because I had um, a brother-in-law who was a chef. And uh, so we kind of had that connection over food and anyways. And so I would talk to him a lot and sort of already, I already loved food and being around food and cooking you know, from a hobby standpoint. Uh, so once I was actually working in that environment, you know, I think I was able to ask certain questions that maybe the normal passerby might not have. And so the back of the house people were like, okay, well, maybe she's actually got, you know, some knowledge and we can teach her things and she's not super annoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge quality right there to have. <laughs> right, right. You know, just sort of like, hey, I, would you mind if I came in early and helped you do this? Like, you don't have to pay me. I'll come in and do it, you know. Is that you know, of course, that uh, unpaid labor that often happens in our industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just well, trying to get your foot in the door, so to speak. Right. I think you have that natural curiosity about it. Right. That's that's just yeah. such a big thing when people have that. It's it's not work to you when you're learning about this stuff. It's fun. Right. And like you know, you see, oh my God, this is like a pirate ship. I want to be a part of this. this looks fun. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's an interesting analogy right there. A pirate yeah, ship. Yeah. Very, there's a lot of ways that the back of the house can be a lot of different things. And I can see oh, a pirate absolutely. ship. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's probably frequent murmurings of mutiny from time to right. time. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yes. Did you work in fast food or anything in high school or was that your first experience? I, my first job in high school was actually scooping ice cream. So uh, in my, my hometown of Evanston, Illinois which is where I'm from originally. Uh, yeah, so I was, I think I was 15, 14 or 15, and yeah, scooping ice cream. And then I worked in a bakery after that. So I always sort of had food going on in some way, you know, from the beginning, I think. Interesting. So talk about culinary school then. You went to school, and where did you go to school, culinary? I went to Madison Area Technical College, uh, which Very was good. a two-year associate degree program and was one of the best decisions I think I could have made from an education standpoint, because the quality of the education was 
so great and so affordable. Uh, you know, they have the same accreditation as, you know, the Culinary Institute and Le Cordon Bleu. So it was really just, I hate to say bang for your buck, but I mean, that's honestly like just the quality of the instructors uh, and the time of day that they were, they, you know, were able to give was amazing. And I would highly recommend that program to anybody who's interested in that in the Madison area, because it was wonderful. No, I've heard those same things. Very, very good school. And yeah. what was the... I know I've heard you talk about this before, but what what was your expectations when you went into culinary school and what was it that you were thinking you'd get at the end? Where where did you think your career would go when you when you left culinary school? Well, I think I think everybody sort of thinks, I'm gonna be a chef, you know, after <laughs> I go to culinary school. But I remember our first day of orientation, uh, you know, our, our program director was like, You will not be a chef after you graduate this program. You will be qualified to be a line cook. <laughs> So get these <laughs> dreams of grandeur out of your head, you know. So it was a very, it was a reality check, uh, and you know, I think that that was one of the most helpful things that somebody could have said, you know, because you, I sort of learned very early on that it's it's a pretty hard road, and it's not something that you know you can just graduate into. You know, there's there's a lot to learn, and you need to have a lot of experience before you can ever dream of taking on that title. So where did you really start to cut your teeth then? after after school uh i i cut well i mean that's sort of an interesting story because i was about i'm trying to i was about 23 i think when i went into culinary school so i was a little bit older uh than a lot of my you know fellow students and i was married at the time and newly married uh so um I was, I was working, I think it was at Trader Joe's at the grocery store at the time, but I think the first restaurant I really started to cut my teeth was at uh, 43 North in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, this was Justin Carlisle's uh, first restaurant after uh, being the executive chef of restaurant Marmoto. Um, and then about nine months after I started working there and I graduated, I moved to Boston with my husband because he got a job out there. And so what I'd like to say, my, my real uh, awakening in the culinary industry was in Boston, which is kind of an interesting thing that I you know the Wisconsin you know, girl goes to Boston and kind of cuts her teeth. So, um, and so I started working at a restaurant called Oleana, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, it's an Eastern Mediterranean restaurant with a lot of Turkish influence and uh, owned entirely by... Um, you know, a woman chef, her name Anna Sortune. And uh, so that was very interesting too. So that was sort of where I, where I started to realize that, okay, like I'm seeing, uh, this is very different than the Madison restaurant scene where there aren't a ton of female executive chefs at this point in time. Obviously now there are, and that's amazing. Um, but it was really eye-opening for me to be like working in a restaurant that was uh, run by, you know, an almost entirely female staff, uh, you know, at the upper levels of the kitchen as well. So, yeah, I, I can um, definitely relate to that where you say that the industry typically very male dominated in the back of the house. And, and, and you know, it also can be a um, industry that while when you're young, it's kind of fun and whatever, but um, it, it, it is also an area where some of the old school chefs really, um, didn't give a lot of respect to people. I mean, you, you kind of uh, in, traditionally growing up in that industry, um, not a lot of chefs toward, pe excuse me, respect toward people in general much. Right. Uh, even... <laughs> Very true. Yes. Yes. 
uh, I mean, luckily, I was very fortunate in my beginnings to work with women, uh, you know, sort of on the line cook level, um, and also have, you know, chefs that were, were very respectful of human beings, you know, for the most part. Um, I didn't have a, a lot of those horror stories that you hear about people throwing pans and stuff like that, which was great because <laughs> I know a lot of people who have those stories and I just feel so awful for them that they had to go through that. Um, but I think I was sort of coming in at the tail end of that era of tyranny so to speak. <laughs> um, that sort of, you know, Anthony Bourdain and, and you know, infused, uh, you know, as I said, pirate lifestyle, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, luckily, I think the, the shift was kind of happening right when I started. So a lot of that was that people thought that that was you had to pay your dues, right? All these. Absolutely. These things that you had to go through somehow to pay your dues. But um, also talk about now, you mentioned that you were married when you moved. And that yeah. is being a chef in, in the industry. It, it's tough to be married if, if your spouse is doing a, a different type of job with different Absolutely. hours. And you know, how did you guys yeah. manage that? Or how did that, um, did you think about that when you were thinking about getting into becoming a chef? Uh, of course, I didn't think about that, you know. <laughs> I just kind of... This was drawn to it. Uh, well, luckily, my, my husband, Eric, is one of the most patient and wonderful people in the world. And, uh, you know, he always was able to find work where his schedule was flexible, mostly in academia. I mean, he's a computer. He works in computer science and programming. So uh, a lot of that work can happen remotely. And um, it's, in, in his case, working uh, in, in the academic sphere. Um, he really was able to adjust his schedule. So if I was working weekends, he could work weekends. And so that we were able to find pockets of time where we, you know, could be together and have a life together and uh, not have it be, um, you know, so, so jarring to, to our lifestyle that we, you know, came across problems, which, uh, you know, I, again, I, I know a lot of people who have struggled with that. And it is really difficult to find a job that allows you to have flexibility in the restaurant or, you know, other, other places. And, uh, you know, we were really lucky that we were able to make that work and still can make that work now. So uh, a lot of it is just trying to find, I think a lot of it is, is finding people to work for who recognize the importance of balance and sustainability. And, you know, that, you know, for, especially for your cooks, you know, that this is a physical job. It takes every ounce that you have of your energy and blood, sweat, and tears and uh, anything that you can do to make that balance and be a reality is, is super important. So I think you're right. I think the balance, <laughs> no, 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 no. Very good points. I think the balance is very critical. My dad, um, he always believed that his cooks, he wanted them to have two days off in a row if yeah. possible. Yeah, that's that's something that I also my my chefs that I worked with in Boston were very adamant about, you know, two days in a row um, as, you know, making that possible, you know, and even if it was in the summertime, too, like it would be crazy because we had a patio at, at Oleana. So we would go from, you know, having 110 seats to, you know, 150 seats, you know, when the weather got nice and uh so that in that case, sometimes in the summertime, it would be like trying to give you three days off in a row if that could happen. So uh, I think that if that's whenever, but when anybody asks me, like if they want to start out in the industry, like any advice, I always say, try to try to find 
a place where you like the people who run the restaurant and you know that they are going to treat you like a human being. <laughs> you know? Right. That's, that's absolutely great advice. And, and yeah. my, my dad, um, one of the things he always took a lot of pride in is that people that work for him were there for many years. He had many chefs that were over 20 years. A lot of servers wow. were over 20 years. Dishwashers over 20 years employment there. So he took great pride in that. And it's a reflection of how he viewed people and ran the business. Absolutely. I, mean, I totally agree. Yes. Yeah. There's realities well, in our world with uh, ours and some of that we just can't get around. But when you have the chance to do it and, and to recognize people, it's really important. And it, again, is recognized by your staff. Yeah, yeah that's, it's all about that quality leadership. You know, as they say, most people don't quit a job, they quit a boss, you know, so it yeah, makes all the difference. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> so talk about moving back to Wisconsin now in Driftless, and how did that come about? Well, um, I think, you know, it was just sort of like fate <laughs> brought us here. Um, we... So we really just love the Midwest and we were in Boston for almost 10 years and uh, we found ourselves just really tired, uh, mostly from the traffic and the commuting uh, that was, you know, getting, taking an hour and a half to go, you know, three miles hmm. <laughs> in <Yeah>. Boston <laughs> is, is a pretty, um, it's pretty draining on your soul. Um, and uh, we just sort of both got to the point where we were just like, we need, we need to get back to our roots. We need to get back to open spaces. Um, and I was, you know, I had a, I was pregnant and I had a daughter in 2000, end of 2017 in November. And uh, we lived in a, a small apartment in Dorchester and we're just like, you know, this isn't really what we want. This is not where we want to raise our kid. So uh, at that time, I was working at a restaurant called Sarma, which was um, Oleana's sister restaurant. The chef de cuisine there opened up her own place um, under the same restaurant group. And I had been there for almost four years at that point as one of the uh, junior sous chefs. And once I had my daughter, Alice, I was not able to go back to that schedule of, you know, 65, 70 hour work weeks. Um, not that I couldn't go back to it. It's that I did not want to go back to it yeah. <laughs> because I wasn't willing to give up that time with my daughter, just, you know, to, to go back to the same intense work. Um, so I, my plan was to really not work in restaurants for a while, take a little bit of a break. And so we looked at, you know, moving back. We, you know, originally from the Chicago area. So we thought about moving back there, but we didn't want to move back to the city. And my brother-in-law is from Holman, and he said, why don't you check out, you know, Viroqua, uh, the Driftless area? And we did, and literally came for a trip, you know, to see our, our family and did a day trip to Viroqua and then turned around and basically started looking on Zillow for houses. <laughs> and then three months later, we we moved. It was, it was, it was insane, but we made it happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was talking with Rich about, you know, neither of us have been down to Viroqua before, and, and, uh... I know I've seen the name like on mm -hmm. the highway, but that yeah. was, that was it. And, but then I started looking into the city a bit more. I'm like, why have I not been here yet? It's, it, yeah, and it's, we haven't been to Driftless yet. So we're going to make a field trip there just because, yes, yes, you know, absolutely. it's so cool looking. Yeah. So, um, we literally started, uh, settling in here and, uh, about six months later, you know, I, you know, was approached by the chef or the owner, Luke Zahm of the Driftless Cafe. We kind of 
had a lot of mutual friends and sort of waved to each other, you know, in the co-op and stuff like that. And, but, you know, started talking one day and uh, one thing led to another and he asked, you know, if I would be willing to come in and, and work. And uh, if I had any interest in a management position, because he had this awesome television opportunity uh, to promote localism and Wisconsin food on Wisconsin foodie. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. You know, I'm ready. I think I'm ready to go back to work. I, you know, I love it here. It's beautiful. And, you know, he and his wife, Ruthie, who is one of the owners as well, basically promised a, a sustainable work situation where, you know, I would be able to see my daughter on a regular basis and work 40 hours or 45 hours a week versus the, you know, as I said, 65, 70 hour week, you know, with the, and we're closed on Sundays and Mondays, which is amazing. So everybody always has those two days off. Um, it's a really great way to rejuvenate our team and just uh, spend some time with our family and rolling around these beautiful hills out here. So, which is, you know, our main inspiration for what we do is just like, the bounty that we have in the Driftless area. So. Yeah, speaking of that that bounty, um, the whole farm to table, that's that's really your your style there, right? That's what you... Yes, uh, I mean, farm to table, I think, you know, we, that term can, uh, can get a little <laughs> controversial, I suppose, but yes, uh, localism, as I, I, I like to use that term more. Oh, I like that one too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have one of the highest concentrations of organic farms uh, in Wisconsin and in this county, you know, in the whole United States. So it is amazing to be able to work with these farmers from season to season uh, to see what they are growing for us specifically and, you know, how they're progressing. And um, the restaurant really provides them with a place like to showcase, you know, their their amazing artistry. I, <laughs> I'm going to wax poetic about the farmers, but uh, you know. I know you do uh, some things with uh, Johnny Hunter. Is that right? Yeah. I know that's not produce or locally raised, but it's it's certainly locally made product. Yes, yes. Uh, so he underground meats. He provides uh, our charcuterie for our cheese and charcuterie boards, um, which is awesome. And then just some of the, the like local produce that we get is, you know, we have just a lot of people that come around that are, you know, wild forage ramps and morel mushrooms are going to be coming around here pretty soon. We have mushroom farmers that are growing amazing oyster mushrooms for us all year round and growing shiitake mushrooms for us. And uh, it's just really uh, humbling to see all of this, all of this product show up at our back door and know that like, you know, we're in charge of uh, of making it shine, so to speak. So, do you have a seasonal menu? Then you just work with what you got that's available at the time of the year. We actually change our menu every single day. Wow! <laughs> for the most part, um, except for one item, and this is when going back to that question about uh, something that comes from Wisconsin uh, or from this area, uh, the tenderloin that we serve. It is a organic berry, which is Organic Valley's. Um, Meats uh, Cooperative, they provide us with uh, cattle, uh, dairy cattle tenderloin, and we serve that with uh, Westby Co-op Creamery butter, whipped potatoes, truffle oil, and local kale. So that is one item that we will never leave the menu because it's fabulous and uh, <laughs> it's completely uh, representative of, of what we're trying to do at the cafe, bringing all these local elements together on one plate. 
Um, so yeah, Organic Valley is uh, in Cashton, which is about a 15 minute drive from Barocra. So a uh, huge, huge name, obviously. So that's another one <laughs> of products that come from the drip list. So yeah, we change our menu on a day-to-day -day basis based on what we have available um, week to week from the farms. Obviously it's, you know, changes It's when it is the middle of winter and, you know, uh, then it gets a little bit more limited in what we can, how we can change it. But, you know, we have sweet potatoes and squash and, you know, potatoes coming in uh, pretty late in the season, even local salad greens, we we're able to get those up until uh, December. Uh, and wow. I think last year we had, we had one farmer who was growing tomatoes underground in a tunnel. So we were able to get tomatoes, I think the week before Christmas. Tunnel tomatoes in Christmas? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, so that was pretty, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> that is um, tunnel tomatoes. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so obviously right now with COVID, we are, we are on hold, uh, which is, you know, sad because it's really going to be the beginning of all of the farm produce coming in again. Um, but yeah, so it's, it gets pretty crazy <laughs> changing that menu uh, day to day, but keeps us on our toes. That's for sure. Is that, is that your, uh, do you design the menu yourself or is it a cooperative experience? Um, it is typically a cooperative experience. I generally have an outline of something that I'd like to do. Um, but you know, I have a staff of about three or four cooks on my line, and we all just sort of come together and and do our prep list every day, and they have a lot of input in the menu, I would say. Um, especially, like, with the small plates, I really do try to allow the staff to have creativity there. We usually do three small plates and uh, three entrees and one vegetarian entree. So, um uh, it's just it's a great opportunity for them because a lot a lot of them are young and starting out in the industry and I think that you know in that process like you, sometimes you don't have that opportunity to be that creative early on because you're just being told you need to do this 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 and this so I am really grateful that I can have the flexibility to allow them to play with some of those ideas and flavors and be there overseeing it for sure but letting them sort of really kind of come into their own and, and develop a sense of, you know, what they might want to be like if, you know, they were ever going to run their own restaurant or find their identity through that food. So, and I would also add to that too, um, because I, ha I had so many years working in Eastern Mediterranean restaurants, that's sort of where my cuisine style, like the, the themes of the menus are, are usually following a lot in those flavor, flavor profiles and spices. So, uh, I do try to, to make sure that there is some continuity in that as well. Earlier, Rich and I were discussing some of the qualities that managers and executive chefs look for in employees that, that help them determine like, yeah, you know, they, they might have a future in this business. What are some of the things that, that you notice or that you look for in your employees? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think it's a hard question too, because sometimes the qualities that you want aren't necessarily qualities that are healthy <laughs> someone um, willing to work 90 hours a week yeah, is not exactly. yeah. <laughs> um i i think for me a lot of it has to be willing willingness to learn um and a willingness to admit that you've made mistakes is a huge part uh i think that 
when you're coming in with an idea that you feel like you already know how to do it and you don't want to accept, you know, somebody else telling you how to do it a different way, that can be toxic uh, on, on many different levels. But um, yeah. I, I always say, like, I'd much rather have somebody come in with no experience at all and a willingness to want want to learn than, you know, the most experienced line cook who, you know, has been around the block and, you know, doesn't think anybody can teach him anything her or her anything else, you know. So yeah. that for sure. Um, I think patience, you know, too, is a, is a big one. I always, uh, when I'm <clears throat> thinking about training new people, you know, I always say that speed, you know, speed is going to come second. You know, we have to learn, you know, how to do it right first. And so I always have to tell my cooks, you know, they need to slow down and not cut corners and <laughs> take the time to do it right. I'd rather you know, that dish goes out a couple minutes later because you went through the motions and you went and did not, not, didn't go, not through the motions, the wrong phrase, but that you went through the process the right way and created something that you would be happy sending out as opposed to trying to be fast, you know, and yeah. uh, just so that you can beat the clock and you can be the fastest cook out there. You know, I think that speed is so, it's like, it's such a goal that many young cooks have and it does come, but it does, it takes time. And you have to be patient and know that you will get there, but your muscles have to learn how to get there first and then it'll just come, you know? No, that's good advice. I think, um, we all know that there's, there's a pace in the kitchen. I always called it second gear. Like when it gets busy, you got to find second gear and that's just the yeah. reality of our, of our lives and in, in, in the business. But it doesn't do you any good if, if you're putting product out that isn't, what it need, what it should be, right? Do it right, right first. I like the way you said that. Do it, do it right, and then speed will come or something, right? That's it's the a, second it's thing. That muscle, it's that muscle memory, you know, uh, knowing exactly where your your oil bottle is and where your parsley is and where your garlic is, and so that like every time you do it, it's like a dance. It's like this that you're just doing it at the same time, and you're not wasting time trying to fumble around and find something, you know. And uh, so that's why I think like being able to take the time to train people over a longer course of time is is definitely preferable uh and luckily in, in our restaurant you know we we're a seasonal restaurant most of the time because you know a lot of our business comes when people are coming here to go fishing or all of the outdoor activities that we have in the summertime with the river and so in the slower times we can take a time to breathe and really develop those skills in, in the in the young chefs that are coming in so right, i I really, really uh, appreciate that I'm able to do that because I know that's not the case everywhere. So, you said something that made me smile. It, um, you said when you turn your, I think you said your parsley or whatever it is, but that's that's such an important uh, part of it. Is that when you're when you're set and you have everything, you put it back in its place. When you turn around and it's yeah. there every time, and you go to reach for it, and, and it's those learning where everything goes in the kitchen. Because when you're busy, all those seconds matter. Yeah, it's coming back to that. Like maybe like you know, not the healthiest stuff, but yeah, if somebody seems like they're obsessive compulsive, you know, that's not necessarily. (laughs) No, but I think that, I think that goes for anybody, you know, in any profession, you know, like I'm a photographer and videographer and I know where my stuff is and I don't mind if people borrow stuff. It's just like, could you please just put it back so I don't have to waste time trying to locate it and or know if I need to get a new whatever you know it's so I I think that's a quality that can be appreciated across a wide field of professions. Yeah, and I think that it's important as as a leader and you know 
a manager to set that standard. So I remember like the first time I kind of was, was in the kitchen, like, all right, this is Mary, you know, executive chef coming in for her first service, setting up my, you know, hotel pans with my nice hands and like people looking at me like I'm insane. Like, <laughs> what is she doing? And I mean, you know, everything is got its place and I know where my squeeze bottles are and, you know, everything. And just sort of like these, these, these young white eyes looking up at me like, what is happening here? And, but uh, I, like to say, I think it's rubbing off though. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> uh, looking up at you like, is this what I become? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or like, I mean, looking at myself like, oh, God, who? Was this actually Yes. <laughs> all, all good tips just to be successful. Everything has its place, right? And Absolutely. I give, I, if, I, if I teach people, that's one of the pieces of advice I always give them is to, to set your area up and get all, everything you need for the recipe out on the counter. Because even if you know the salt is in the cabinet over there and, or, or the right, right. whatever it is you need, just that extra time to go get it doesn't mean it means you're not focusing on what you're what you've got on the stove. So absolutely. get everything set. Yep, that's a yep, good key absolutely. to success right there. Mary, I have one more question for you. Sure. Yeah. So in your entire culinary experience, what was one of the best or one of the top three <laughs> favorite things that you've ever made? Something that you were super proud of or that changed how you did things from there on out. And by contrast. What was one of the worst experiences you had? Oh gosh, like personally. You can take, you can take it. Is it. Does it have to be something I made? Personally, or... professionally, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be professionally. It can just be at any point. It could be. Oh, that's a you know, difficult A grasshopper question. sandwich you made when you were oh, five my. or something. Um, I used to make this bread when I was a, a kid that I thought was great, but it was literally water and flour and eggs. <laughs> I mean, I can remember being like six or seven and, you know, just like throwing those ingredients, like three eggs some flour and some water and like making like a flatbread, <laughs> throwing it in the oven. And it was really awful. <laughs> I mean, my parents were like, oh, this is great. You know, no, 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 it wasn't. So I, I think that's probably definitely oh. the worst thing I've ever made. Um, oh, God, the best thing I've ever made. You know, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Well, you know, tomorrow you're going to show up at the restaurant, or when you can go back to the restaurant, you're going to show up, and your your chefs are going to make that for you, oh, right? Yeah. Here's your bread. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, that's a, the best thing I ever made. I it could be top three or top five. You know, one of your, one of the best. Okay. Uh, well, cause... I think recently I was I did a a dinner. We're doing a, a a series at the restaurant right now called the Queen's Table, where we're um, highlighting female chefs um, in like a collaborative dinner. Uh, it was like a five course dinner. And so we're, it's an ongoing series, which hopefully we'll be able to pick back up once we're able to open again. Um, and I made, uh, there's a, a Moroccan dish called Bastia, which is typically a, a pigeon pie, so to, so to speak. Um, but I used duck. So I did a braised duck thigh that I shredded and sort of turned into like a pulled duck meat sort of situation with a, uh, lots of different spices, Moroccan spices, um, and then wrapped it up in a brique pastry, uh, baked it and served that with uh, an apricot brown butter and a frise salad. I was really happy with how it turned out. It was just sort of a, a love letter to the flavors that you know I was able to spend so much time with in Boston. And uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty psyched about that. <laughs> so, I, I'm sounding psyched yeah, about that. That's so I, I, you know, that was one of those moments where I was like, this could be a signature dish. 
So I don't have a lot of those moments because, you know, we're, we're changing the menu all the time. So I don't necessarily <laughs> get to, to workshop things all the time that I, you know, would like to. So that was, that was a really, that was really neat to be able to say, okay, I could do this again and be, be very confident in that. So. Yeah, that should live on the menu like your tenderloin. You say that's always on there, right? Yes, you yes, put this tenderloin. Stuff. Yep, yep. It's uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, if I can find a a steady uh, supply of local duck, you know, you never know. Could happen. There we go, Justin. We know what we're having when we make it down to. The I local. know what I'm having when I go down there. Yeah, right. I'm ordering off the menu for sure. <laughs> Okay, ah, that is, uh, unfortunately, I think we're, we're running out of time here. So, uh, Mary, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you um, so thank much you. for having me. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking with you. We can't wait to get down to Viroqua yes, and yes. Uh, come see you. <laughs> and, so, and everyone, I hope that um, today's show was interesting for you. And the next time you're out to dinner and you're in a restaurant, you take a look around and maybe give a little thought about the people working there and what it takes to be in the industry. It's... Um, it's an amazing industry, but it takes a lot of dedication. And, um, Justin, any uh, final words from you? Well, I'd just like to remind people to hit that subscribe button. Never miss a moment. Never miss a topic. Never miss a chef interview. We have lots more coming. And if you like what we're doing, please go ahead and share that with your friends as well. And Mary, as we like to um, leave it with our chefs, we always like to ask for a inspirational quote something that uh what someone along the way mentor in out of the industry kind of uh something that stuck with you and maybe a little bit of the um thought behind the quote i'm gonna go with a quote that we use at the driftless cafe which is good energy equals good food uh serves as a constant reminder uh for us to uh, pay attention to the love that we're putting into our product and that's going out to our guests and also just uh, to remember localism and the importance of local food and that there's so much good energy that is put into growing that food. So it's just sort of reciprocal. Um, and that's what I always try to remember when I'm going in for the day and bringing that energy and that expression of love going out to our guests in the dining room. Oh, that. excellent. That's yeah, that's perfect. And as always, I like to end the show with a quote of my own. And I think... And extending out the uh, the show today, we're talking about everything being fresh. And, um, you know, my dad always used to say that no matter what you're doing, if it's if it's a sandwich, if it's an entree, whatever it is, everything you use, be it the meat, the bread, everything about what you're doing, fresh is best. That was something he always tried to drive home. Fresh is best. Okay, that is it. And everyone, I thank you again for listening to us here at the Volrath Feed. Until next time, everyone, please take care.